Thanks for downloading this podcast, which is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. This podcast was recorded during our series of late summer lectures in 2020. For diplomats coming to the court of Charles I, it was more than a case of knocking at the door and being shown in. In this talk, Kimberly Foy of Durham University uses the experience of visiting ambassadors to show how attending the court of Charles I involved a carefully choreographed set of moves through very particular spaces. In 1564, when reflecting on the status war which had erupted between Spain and France at the papal court, the Spanish ambassador to Rome, Don Louis de Requesens, lamented that, quote, if the king of Spain does not demonstrate great anger and sorrow in this matter of precedence, no reputation will remain for us to lose. Um, so essentially, uh, a bit of a disagreement had erupted between uh, the, uh, the ambassadors of Spain and France. Um, and there was an argument over precedence. So precedence essentially just refers to um, the position uh, you might take at a court, which then represents your importance at that court. Um, and it's represented in, in many different ways, which I'll go through in the talk. I'll give a couple of examples. You'll figure it out as we go on. So just as society was hierarchically graded on a local court level with lower status individuals separated from the powerful by varying levels of access to interior spaces, for example, or access to fine clothing. Early modern states and their rulers were ranked against each other according to the relative power, influence and territorial dominance they enjoyed internationally. For as long as the Spanish monarch had also held the title of Holy Roman Emperor, Spain's position at the top um, of this hierarchy was assured. Um, in the 1550s, his uncle Ferdinand claimed the imperial title and his nephew, Philip II, succeeded to the Spanish throne without the Holy Roman Emperorship. So doubts over Spanish supremacy on the European stage now led France to stake its claim, asserting its precedence over Spain at, a, at all available sort of opportunities. As late as 1617, so around the, the time we're moving into, the, just before the Caroline period, the rift persisted at the English court. It now took the form of a disagreement over diplomatic choreography. The resident French ambassador, Monsieur de Marais, claiming precedence over the Spanish ambassador, was in so the Comte de Tillier was unhappy that the particular placing of uh, Gondomar during another mask would similarly convey Spanish superiority over France. As these experiences show, relative spatial positioning of ambassadors in relation to the English king when in public, particularly when the focus of a large audience was a source of extensive argument and fuss. How might an ambassador make visible his master's status if he could not be seen to be prominent or to be taking a place of honour? And if he was seen, who else was also visible to undercut his performance? The issue of an invitation could, even if in of itself, um, elicit excited complaint. A Venetian ambassador requesting to be present at the St. George's Day feast in 1627 was told um, that both uh, the Dutch, the, the state's ambassador, the Dutch ambassador, um, and Danish ambassadors would be present. Um, he was most displeased, um, and, it, this, and even though there was no kind of bad feeling between those ambassadors at the time, it shows us that they were constantly fighting uh, to be near the king or to be seen sort of publicly. 
So studies of the English and European courts have shown that royal authority was, was articulated and continually reimagined within a varied but familiar system of highly ritualized and often symbolic public performances. So we have the religious rituals of baptism and marriage, masks and other court spectacles, royal audiences, and even the daily rituals of royal life, as we'll see in a bit. International politics represented a conundrum here. Who was the dominant figure amongst a cohort of monarchs, all of whom might expect to be top dog at their own courts domestically. Um, so it's worth remembering that ambassadors in theory any were, were the embodiment of, of their master. So when a, a French ambassador appeared at the, French, at the English court, in theory, this was the, the, the French king appearing in person in some ways. So that was kind of the, the kind of underpinning idea. So you have an issue. So who's, who's going to come out on top here in terms of this spatial dynamic? In this context, Safeguarding the honour and magnificence, magnificence of the monarch was widely seen as the most fundamental duty of the ambassador. The devolution of monarchical authority, as I've described, to ambassadors meant that a slight against him was taken as an insult to his monarch. International reputations and relationships could therefore be made or destroyed in public, as one scholar has described so beautifully, Quote, the crux of the matter was that appearances, the right to a place of honour in public ceremonies of any kind, the right to receive rather than make the first visit when two diplomats had to deal with each other, clearly and brutally symbolised power and status. Um, I don't have time to go into it sort of too much, but the, the Venetian state papers are sort of this absolute vault of brilliant anecdotes about competition between ambassadors and I think it was it's the, either a wedding or a coronation of the French queen in the first decade of the 17th century, the Venetian ambassador and the Spanish ambassador literally end up in a brawl involving hats because the Venetian ambassador um, misaddresses the Spanish ambassador and, you know, doesn't sort of, I think he, say, he says basically the 17th century version of hey you instead of um, your imperial highness or whatever words he's supposed to use. And they essentially brawl across the courtyard, which you can kind of, so really, it's quite important. Um, I will argue in this paper that in the highly contested spaces of palaces and other venues of royal spectacle, the position of ambassadors in relation to what Clifford Geertz famously termed the charismatic centre or the monarch defined them. Um, in 1619, in the days before a running of the tilt, so I think the running of the tilt comes up a lot. I think it's sort of um, equivalent to jousting or, or jousting related activities to commemorate King James's accession um, so yeah, in 1619, at this running of the tilt, the French extraordinary ambassador, the Maréchal de Cadenet, made clear to Finnet um, that the importance of a position which had already been given to Gondomar. So he was annoyed that this position had been given to the Spanish ambassador. He complained, quote, that the Spaniard might have the better place as being most in the king's and the people's sight. The, comp the competition for proximity was a struggle for control. As the frustrations of the Spanish and French ambassadors demonstrate, the visual narrative would be read, dissected, and deeply evaluated by those watching. It could not be incidental. It could not be left to chance and wasn't. Um, and when I say visual narrative, I mean, people are literally reading the scenario to see who is the most important and who is the least important and what is the order based on where they're positioned. When Finnet issued Gondomar an invitation to a mask in January 1615, the, the ambassador first inquired as to whether the ambassador of the Dutch Republic, Noel Caron, would be there. Now, though the independence of the Dutch states, formerly ruled by Spain, um, had been declared as part of 
uh, the Twelve Years' Truce in 1607, it was not universally recognised by the time of Finnett's invitation. So while England, France and Venice had accepted this reality, Spain would not accept this. Having discovered that the Dutch ambassador would be given a seat next to the king, as he himself would enjoy, Gondomar was furious. He declared that he could, quote, never with patience see the representant of his master's vassals and rebels hold equal rank with him, which he had inferred from the fact that they would both be equidistant from James um, at this mask. Doing so would constitute for Gondomar uh, a de facto acknowledgement of the new status of the states, of the Dutch states, um, no longer subjects of the Spanish crown. Um, for his part, the king offered a spatial concession. He proposed that the Spanish ambassador would sit on his left, the right of the queen and Prince Charles, a place of diminished honour. Um, but in the end, this proved too much for uh, Karen Caron, the um, Dutch uh, ambassador, states ambassador, and he refused to attend. Now, James was certainly doing his utmost to woo Gondomar in this period, and it worked. The two were close. Um, by 1615, James had begun negotiating for the, quote, Spanish match, a scheme by which the Spanish Infanta would marry his heir, Prince Charles. More broadly, James hoped to forge a reputation as the peacemaker of Europe, which up to this point, and quite, quite a bit past it, uh, would suffer the ravages of war really resulting from the religious reformation. Um, James willing, James's willingness to acquiesce to Gondomar's demands is evidence perhaps um, of his diplomatic foresight um, and political skill. Um, although he wrote extensively on his idealised views of kingship, kings being set apart, etc., his biographers generally agree that he was political pragmatist, and I think pragmatist, excuse me, and I think this episode kind of demonstrates that quite nicely. James's approach to kingship in theory and in practice was one of repeated renegotiation as he came to understand the realities of ruling according to an unwritten English constitution, one in which the king ruled in tandem with parliament and his nobility. Um, he espoused the, the divine right of the Stuarts in his Basilicon Doron, but adopted an affability in public which engendered a sense of inclusion and mutual respect amongst the diplomats resident at his court and, of course, among his own nobility. At Whitehall, he dined alone in state on occasion. Um, in a letter to George Calvert, James Privy Councillor and Secretary of State in 1624, the Earl of Bristol noted that he was, quote, admitted that day to see the King dine. So this was an event. Um, however, the performance was most often a collaborative affair. As John Finnett evidences in his diaries, James invited ambassadors to dine with him regularly and encouraged um, an atmosphere of warm informality, which really comes through um, in Finnett's diaries. The relative ease of the encounter um, did not diminish its value as a spectacle. This was a public act of equivocation between the king and the ambassador he invited. In 1615, for example, the newly arrived Russian ambassador was invited to dine with the king and duly accepted the invitation. Officials had considered including Prince Charles, but it was felt that should the Russian ambassador discover the plan to place the prince and the king's right, the place of most honour, um, he would have refused the invitation. And this plan to include Charles in this way was scrapped. Um, the Swedish ambassador dined with the king in 1617 and was also honoured with an invitation to his withdrawing chamber beforehand for an informal meeting. In 1620, the imperial ambassador, Count Schwarzenberg, dined with him in the upper house of parliament where he was, quote, publicly seated. It was reported that the king and his guests would, quote, dine together at table and wash their hands in the same basin so that they almost seemed to be equals. Really interesting quote. James I died on the 5th of April 1625. Although many of the residence ambassadors, including the Venetian ambassador, expected to take part in the funeral possession, massive occasion, um, it was nonetheless decided that they should, quote, be spectators only of the solemnity passing by. 
Despite their claims that they shared an equal rank with the king as representatives of Louis XIII, the French ambassadors were prevented from marching on either side of him. And when I say the king, I mean the new king, Charles I, in the funeral, excuse me. Um, reporting back to his superiors in Venice in April 1625, uh, Zuan Pizarro resident, resident ambassador reported, quote, it was especially remarked that since William the Conqueror, the king had only thrice been present at the funeral celebration. So there was kind of this acknowledgement that it was a bit odd that Charles was taking part in this um, solemnity, that he was sort of taking such a uh, frontline role and doing so alone. His outright refusal to be accompanied during the procession must have been a subject of some discussion between the ambassadors and their superiors, and probably each other, as this dispatch suggests. Charles now effected a wholesale removal of ambassadors from his person in the public landscape. In this period, just sort of as a, a background, um, as Kevin Sharp notes in his book on the personal rule of Charles I, regulations were introduced kind of instructing courtiers and other individuals working in the palace to maintain a certain distance from the royal family at all times. And this was quite new. So public dining with the monarch was now scrapped. Finnett commented in early 1629 that the king had, quote, altered the course of the, ki of the king, his father, in admitting ambassadors to his table and that he had not entertained them in this way, quote, since his marriage in 1625. On an exceptional occasion that year, the visiting Russian ambassador was invited to Charles's presence as he dined at the St. George's Day feast, but quote, after a passage of some compliment departed without dining. Finnett noted that, quote, neither by the rule of his own order nor an observation of his own prescription could he admit any man at a table with the king. Um, in the run-up to St. George's Day in the Garter Feast in 1632, the French, Venetian and States ambassadors inquired whether they might be permitted to dine in public with him. In a farcical encounter, they were brought in only for a brief moment and then returned directly to their respective lodgings. Um, in November 1629, the French ambassador Chateauneuf was seated, my French, is, my French pronunciation is terrible, Chateauneuf was seated beside the king at an informal gathering to celebrate his birthday at Somerset House, the personal residence of his queen Henrietta Maria. But as the feast had been prepared and was under her direction at her designated residence, it's possible that Charles had deferred to his wife here. Um, in 1635, the Elector Palatine was exempt from the general rule regarding foreign visitors dining with the king. And in addition to sh sharing his table, Charles Louis also washed with the king in his presence chamber. And um, this, so there's there are ties of blood and kingship at operation here because Charles Louis was the nephew of the king uh, via his sister, Elizabeth. So this is why I think he was exempted. Ambassadors were now comprehensively denied the right to be seated publicly with the king, drawing masks as state or crown representatives. Um, in preparation for the Christmas mask in 1626, Charles indicated his desire to, quote, have places apart provided for the states that's Dutch again uh, and Venetian ambassadors. As Finnett noted, the move was a marked change from the manner of his father. Charles resolved, quote, never more to admit any ambassador's resident to sit next his person under the state, no more than to eat with him in public. Though the Venetian successfully requested to have the honour granted on this one occasion, he was warned that such a request would not serve as a precedent. Neither he nor any, quote, were ever to expect the like hereafter, which is pretty sharp language. Um, and the Venetians reported this home kind of incredulously in, their, in the, their report. It was not the first time that ambassadors had been denied a valuable place at the king's side. James had instituted a similar rule for a short period in 1619, um, when the demands for precedence of ambassadors, <laughs> which were getting a bit out of hand, uh, drove him in a fit of annoyance to declare that he would never permit uh, to, for them to join him again. But of course he did. 
Charles, um, not content simply to remain a mere spectator, um, had his first uh, exercise at performing a mask in 1631. That year, he presented with a few gentlemen of his chamber staff, Love's Triumph Through Calipolis. Um, the Spanish, Venetian and French ambassadors were all issued invitations. However, it was much emphasised that after, thereafter that ambassadors, should they be keen to attend, could only do so in a private capacity and not no longer as official representatives. Worse still, invitations began no longer to be issued at all and the onus now shif shifted to ambassadors to sort of inquire as to whether they, they might be allowed to attend, which is astounding, given the traditions in the previous reign. In, this, in 1632, in the run-up to a performance of Albion's Triumph, Finnett was instructed that, quote, no invitations were to be issued to ambassadors. Instead, the French and Savoyard ambassadors were permitted only in their domestical manner, so their personal manner, not as representatives of, of, their, of their masters, beside, uh, and were only permitted beside the ladies on the left-hand side of the Queen, humiliating spot. Uh, the denial of official seating continued when Vincenzo Gussoni, the new Venetian ambassador was forced to make a humiliating request, quote, for some place where he might sit and see um, the, uh, the temp restored unseen a little bit later. So things had really deteriorated by this point. Um, I'm almost done, but just to kind of start to sum up, um, Charles is now kind of positioning himself as the sole performer at these events. He's actually become a performer rather than a viewer. Um, but even as a viewer, he is now become a sort of performer because everyone else is looking at him as the most important viewer. Um, ambassadors are now stripped of the ability to represent their state or their, their crown and cannot perform publicly, which is sort of really important uh, to remember as we go through. And Charles in some ways has kind of created himself as sort of an untouchable kind of image. This is where the idea of iconography comes in. And I would kind of call this iconographic rule, rule by iconography, where he just wants to be seen and that's supposed to be how power works for him, I think. Um, I think it's difficult to appreciate the effect Charles's policy would have had on the diplomatic population. But we do know that when several ambassadors were offered private seating at the first performance of um, Colum Britannicum in, in February 1633, but no formal invitation as, as, as representatives, um, none came, none arrived. And they were clearly taking offence at this. So I think just to sum up, I think um, Charles's need for a central unchallenged position in the performance of court ceremonies and routines is paramount, even if it stunted the relationships between himself and international representatives. His decision, I think, to keep a select few close, such as his nephew, Charles Louis, and to push everyone else away, created a space between his inner circle and everybody else. And I think he kind of begins to assume as kind of a role as a sort of a, a, a kind of a sun king. You can see in the, I'm not comparing it to Louis the, the 14th directly. I'm just saying in some of the plays, he represents a kind of a godlike figure, a bright godlike figure. So that's kind of why I'm using that word. And I think the difference with James is that while James understands the need to be entrenched in the political system, the need to negotiate locally, but also internationally with ambassadors, um, Charles refuses to engage with this. So I think there's a real polarity both between the king and everyone else, hugely separated, but also Charles in terms of his understanding of how politics works, domestic politics, international politi politics, but also I think the approach of his father, James. So in these ways, I think that's that really kind of shows the political magnetism. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media 
and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.